1: it's lenny murphy with another edition of the green book podcast we are sure glad that you are here with us as we engage in interesting and hopefully stimulating conversations i think that's a pretty safe bet that, that will happen today with uh with our guests so our guest today is lee caldwell one of the partners in the irrational agency and if you have ever heard lee present or read any of his blog posts or any of his uh his tweets as well back in the day he is a darn entertaining guy so i think that we're going to have a great time lee welcome hi
2: lenny great to great to see you great to talk to you we are actually recording this while twitter still exists but you're obviously forecasting that by the time it's released uh, it no longer will
1: uh if, <laughs> uh, if so then uh, rest in peace uh, you know interesting times i must admit i've only ever utilized twitter for business purposes and i won't get into my opinions about the recent changes but it is darn entertaining to watch at the very least so talk about uh just changing times uh we'll see where things go so lee for our audience who may not be aware of you why don't you tell them a little bit about your background and a bit about the irrational agency and then we'll go from there
2: yeah absolutely so i founded the Irrational Agency in 2012 uh, with a a co-founder. And where it kind of came from, I had been working in the behavioral science space for a number of years at that time. I had been working particularly on pricing research and pricing strategies. I'd written a book called The Psychology of Price. And I had, I, I guess I'd come to this realization that there was a lot of insight to be gained around behavioral economics, behavioral science, into how people really make decisions. And of course, that's what market research and insight is all about, is how consumers make decisions. So I realized there was something to bring from that world of of science and scientific discoveries into the commercial market research space. At the time, there were a couple of other people dabbling in the behavioral science field and uh, within the research industry, but not a lot. Uh, We were one of the first back then to to start up. So created the agency and over the last 10 years, we have developed a number of new methodologies based on behavioral science that are new ways to uncover unconscious decision making, ways to get to the hidden narratives, the unconscious stories that consumers have about the world and understand and distill those into tools that clients can use to make better business decisions. So um, we're based in London. We have an office in Amsterdam. We do work all over the globe. So plenty of clients in the in the States as well. And we are growing. So maybe uh, we will have a chance to recruit some of your listeners by the end of the, the episode and, and tell you what we're looking for, but uh, always looking for great people to work with. So uh, I, hopefully that could be some of your listeners.
1: Okay. We will make sure to weave that in at the very end. Uh, submit your resumes, too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. The uh, Gosh, I, I hadn't thought about it. I guess we really have known each other about from the beginning of the, uh, the founder of the company. So it's interesting that, you know, if I look back, uh, I've always thought that the application of behavioral science and in insight space has been one of the slowest areas to adopt but yet, I would argue, one of the most impactful areas. And I think that's changing. I think that we are entering an era where it is now becoming uh, table stakes in many, many cases for brands, particularly, to incorporate not just methodologies, but the understanding, the insights overall into their business. Obviously, since you're growing, uh, I think you would echo that, or are you, you're seeing that that rising tide? Well,
2: absolutely. I, I think there is a... E- growing understanding of you know the language, the concepts behind behavioral science. So most of us in the industry now will be familiar with, uh, for example, the system, the multiple systems idea in the brain, system one, system two. And we also talk about system three, but we maybe we'll get onto that later. People are, they are definitely looking for that level of unconscious insight. And there, there's been, honestly, I think researchers always knew that Surveys, traditional questioning approaches could only go so far. We always know that when we ask somebody to rate a brand on a scale from one to five, we're getting a very, very narrow slice of the picture. And uh, sometimes that's been supplemented with qualitative research. And qual, of course, allows you to go deeper and go richer at the potentially at the expense of statistical robustness. But there has always been that gap um, in how can we get beyond what people tell us, beyond what people say, get an understanding of how they're really thinking, what they're really doing. And while I suppose the the frustration or the knowledge that there was a gap there has been present ever since I, I've been in this industry, there has always been a debate about what the right solutions are, how to get there, and whether behavioral science is the best tool or a tool to do that. And um, it, yes, it's taken a while for the momentum to build for enough people to gain enough experience and comfort with behavioral science for it to become a standard part of the research arsenal. And there's certainly places and companies and brands where it's not yet and where people are still, they still see it as experimenting. But more and more companies, both on the vendor side and on the client side, are incorporating behavioral science, even if they don't lead with you know a method like this is our implicit measurement tool or you know what is something that's very clearly behaviorally oriented it's always woven into survey design into conversation guides discussion guides and uh, it definitely informs more and more of what the industry does now
1: yeah i, I couldn't agree more on um, the, the gen 2 side of the business right we are working with several brands right now and this happens periodically of Reevaluating not so their vendor mix but their approach right this uh, the, the, their approach to innovation uh, within the inside space and in all of them it is being built around the idea of applied behavioral science across any business issue that they that they have and what i hear consistently is a lot of dissatisfaction well that's not the best way to say it i think you actually said it best an awareness that you know, we have lots of data to tell us who what when where and how from lots of different sources, but not why. And having that contextual framework of understanding the why, if anything I would say is the data, if all those other data sources have grown in awareness and use, it has made the glaring absence of the why more apparent. Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely. And uh, if you want to uncover the why, we, we kind of know that just asking consumers, why did you do this? Or why do you like this product? Why don't you like that product? Is never going to give a really deep and accurate answer. So we, we had to come up with different tools. And some of those are in the implicit measurement space, things like implicit association tests and reaction time. Some of them are in say the narrative space where we get people to tell a story. And we look at, you know stories are, are very good at revealing why because stories are all about cause and effect. So there are there are different approaches to this, but it's uh, uh, gradually becoming a thing that people do in a typical research project rather than a special project. We it, it used to be when we started the company, people might bring us in when they had some kind of really interesting, tricky task or or research question. They would they would see this as this is our behavioral project, or we want to we want to try this behavioral science thing, and they might bring us in to do that and to Kind of learn what it was all about, and now it tends to be quite different. Now it tends to be the client has a brief. The brief is on a business question. It's not explicitly a behavioural brief. It's a brief about some aspect of consumer thinking or, or opinions or preferences or or what people do, and they see behavioural research as a tool that can answer most business questions. At least the the clients who are who have made that leap and have got used to the behavioral mindset
1: yeah you know and it's it's interesting recently i was looking i forget the website i don't have to find it but it was listing all of the the nudge units oh, right all yeah. of the the applied behavioral science organizations from a governmental standpoint and also the academia and it occurred to me it's like we were looking at the same progression we have with virtually every technology that started in academia Trialed and scaled within government, often the military, but but not only, and then filtering out into the public sector. and And I think we're at that point now where that filtering process is occurring. Right? We have seen, you know, the uh, the academic, which I'm sure you're familiar with as well. That proving of it, the the testing within government organizations, again, good, bad, or indifferent. That's a whole other conversation, right? <laughs> and now the Y-scale adoption. Would you you agree that we're seeing that progression? Yeah, now?
2: I I think that's an interesting perspective. I think you're right. People often have an assumption that government or the public sector is always the slow one and that companies are faster moving, more agile, more innovative. And I guess in some areas that's true, but in others, companies can be quite conservative with a small C. It's uh, They can be very much wait and see, wait till somebody else... Has taken the risk, and somebody else has has proven this. Whereas, at least in, in government, there is at least some political impetus towards innovation, even if it's just a matter of you know a new government comes in in a country and they want to look different to the old people. And this certainly happened in the UK with the Behavioral Insight Team. They were advised at the Conservative government in 2010 was advised by Richard Thaler, who's one of the uh, well-known kind of founding fathers of behavioral economics, and. He had he and his co-author Cass Sunstein, had realized or had pointed out that behavioral science is actually a very useful tool politically uh, because it allows you to bring about change. like yes, yeah, governments always want to change things. They always want to you know achieve some goal that might be to get people to recycle more or to have them pay more tax or to you know to reduce crime, whatever their goal is. They want to change human behavior but there's a resistance politically to doing that through spending lots of money uh, or doing it through heavy-handed regulation. And so behavioral science was brought in, this phrase libertarian paternalism was coined, which is the idea that you can be paternal in that sometimes the government knows or thinks it knows a better way for things to be and wants to help people to do better in their lives, but libertarian in the sense that it still wants to give people freedom of choice. And so a classic example was the organ donation area where we have, uh, in some countries, we had a shortage of kidneys and livers and so forth being donated um, after, after people's deaths in accidents. And the governments wanted to increase the number of people who signed up to that register to say, yes, I'm willing to donate my organs. But you don't want to, um, at least most governments, don't want to force people to do that. They want to still allow people the option. So what they did is they flipped around a system where originally you had to sign up explicitly to say, I'm going to become an organ donor, to a system where you were automatically an organ donor, but you could still opt out. So you had the option, you, you still had the freedom of choice, but if you didn't bother to make a decision, then the default was different. And so that increased vastly the number of people who were signed up to the register. Um, various examples like that, also in financial examples where you encourage saving by getting people to say in advance i'm going to save part of my next pay rise instead of having to pay out of today's wages you're paying out of tomorrow's wages and that's always much less painful so yeah these governments were able to do these things and then the private sector has learned from that there is a lot of inertia in the private sector you know because people who work in brands are understandably they don't want to do some experiment try something Risky and dangerous, and uh, it might not work. And then they might get criticised, or they might get fired. It, I can understand why people are cautious. And uh, depends, on, of course, depends on the culture of your organisation. Some organisations are willing to fail; others, it makes you look bad. And so, uh, it's not really the culture. So, even within the private sector, you do have the early adopters, and then the early majority, the late majority. This technology adoption curve that uh, we we know from other technology spaces, that applies to behavioral science just as much. And I think we're, we're now into that early majority phase of behavioral science.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I heard, uh, many, many years ago, I was at a a Nielsen event in Cairo, Egypt. They were trying to recruit me to move to Cairo. Well, one of the key takeaways was though that they, that was at the point where Nielsen was trying to mainstream neuromarketing and Martin Lindstrom was speaking. And he says something that really, really struck me, that the goal of Insights is to tell companies how they can sell more stuff. Now, whatever that stuff is, a product, an idea, a story, a narrative. And that resonated as just, yeah, that is exactly what our job is, is to tell companies how to sell more stuff. And in order to do that, we need to understand the drivers of behavior because we are you know everything that you know, and I'm sure our listeners have heard a hundred times, right? we're not we're not rational animals, often with our decision making, et cetera, et cetera. And from that standpoint, sometimes I feel cynical saying that. Um, you know, uh, occasionally, I will observe uh, commercials or even the effect of uh, of behavioral applied behavioral change with my children and think, oh, man, all right, this is, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not okay with this. I see what's happening here. No, 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 close your ears, right? Don't pay attention to this. But it is so intrinsic to us from a cultural standpoint, not even, maybe even more just as at a species level, almost genetic, to understand this complex interplay between all of these different prompts that impact how we decide, how we behave, what we do, uh, how we live our lives—it's endlessly fascinating for yeah. me.
2: Yeah, and I think the the idea that it's about selling more stuff is true, but I think it can sound a little bit more insidious than it really is. I think <laughs> you can put that another way. You can say the goal is for us to find better ways to make each other's lives better. And if you know, if if I sell you more stuff, I hope it's because I have found a way to show you that the thing I'm selling will make you happier, will make you better off. Now, of course you could have a situation where I have persuaded you that that's the case and it wasn't true. And that is where there is a little more of an ethical question. And one of the paradoxes of behavioral science is that it tells us we don't really know what we want. And traditional economics would say, People have a clear idea of what their preferences are. If you can meet those preferences better, if you can show people, if you can create a product that fits those preferences, people learn about the product, they recognize that this will be something they want and they choose to buy it, everyone's definitely better off. And I still, you know, I think broadly speaking, that's broadly still true, but we do now know that People don't have fixed preferences. They don't have. They don't always consistently want the same things, and often they don't even know what they want. And um, the things they want are a function of what they see around them. A very obvious effect is the uh, or example is the Goldilocks effect, where I, if you show me two bottles of wine or two chocolate bars or two cars, I may think I want one of them. Typically, it will be the lower, the cheaper one or the the lower cost one because usually I don't think the the more expensive one is worth the extra money but if as soon as you show me 3 then I'm more likely to want the middle one so if i've got you know car 1 car 2 and i prefer car 1 as soon as you add car 3 then i'm more likely to to want car 2 and so there's you know there's a lot more subtlety to this but what that's showing you is that there was no definitive preference for car 1 over car 2 there was no fixed set of desires that the company is trying to serve. The desire or the choice emerges from an interplay between the consumer and the company and all the other companies that are out there and all the other stories and narratives that are swirling around us. So it does make the ethical question a little bit tougher. We're not just discovering people's true wants and meeting them, we are co-creating what people want with them. And I think as long as we have an awareness of that and maybe even give the consumer a little bit of the power or or more of the power to create their own wants and to be a willing active participant in this process. That's really powerful. And actually, this is where I would like to see the research industry going and where I I think I, I see big opportunities is not just serving brands to sell to consumers, but actually empowering consumers to know their own minds, to shape their own preferences and create their own story that they can then live and buy into
1: or we could take that in lots of different directions lee <laughs> and the term you used a little while ago that libertarian paternalism but well, that is a, a powerful statement uh, i mean it really or a powerful concept in resonating with what you just said and you know gets into the the concepts of social good and, and you know all of those uh those things which certainly we're seeing a change in that of being baked in into a brand into its mission, uh, I think especially in the the younger generation, at least younger than you and I, uh, <laughs> they are expecting that more. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, there
2: was a there was a time when the social good of a brand was seen as the satisfying the consumers of that brand with the with a better consumption experience, and we are now more aware of the social impact, the environmental impact the bigger picture that is created by what we buy and how we live and yeah we want to be able to tell ourselves a story about that that is positive and makes us feel good about our choices and yeah the, the whole dimension of purpose marketing plays into that sometimes you know you know there's, there's lots and lots of debate around purpose and brand purpose and people like uh, mark ritson are very good on this it can be painted on as a surface level bit of a splash of color to try to make your brand look more purposeful. But when it is embedded and when you do have the understanding of how the choices you make affect the world, then there is a genuine valid place for a brand to be part of that purpose that will enable its existence in the long term and make sure that it still has a role to play in a world that might look quite different in 50 years.
1: Yeah, uh, the word that comes to mind for me is authenticity. I'm sure we can both rattle off examples of the inauthentic application, (laughs) that splash of color, as you say. And, you know, we as consumers are, are smart uh, and and cynical
2: and cynical. Um, Yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? Cynical is one of those other things that we learned in our long evolutionary history is to not believe everything you hear and probe a little bit further. So that cynicism has, has helped us survive over the, the millennia and it's uh, uh, occasionally it can be be a little too strong. I spoke to a research respondent this morning who proudly declared I'm a conspiracy theorist and <laughs> uh, started telling me some of the conspiracies they believed in. And uh, I think you can be too cynical, but there is a balance. You also can be too naive.
1: There is. Well, you know, someone who may classify themselves that way as well, uh, just for the entertainment <laughs> value. Um, <Yeah>. the, uh, <laughs> I, I understand that, knife's edge that has walked there Absolutely. between you know we got a more to something right although i still think that the you know the aliens are going to land any day now and and uh, and the government will reveal that they've been here for a long time but that's uh <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah i'm
1: possibly running twitter <laughs> uh, possibly <laughs> that, that's why he wants to get to mars so bad well he yeah he's just home. going home yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so you have uh you've mentioned the concept of narratives several times and and you've pioneered this concept of system three and actually i think you're up for an award uh right for the uh the mrs yeah yeah as
2: at time at time of recording we are a finalist for innovation of the year at the mrs and we'll find out uh next week or by the time you're listening to this we will know whether we have won that award or not um yeah so system three You'll all probably know about system one and system two. As I said, it's almost become common currency in the industry. Now, system one is the unconscious mind, the way that you react without even thinking to stimuli and follow habits. system two is the calculating and deliberative mind. And in the traditional behavioral science view of decision making, they've only looked at these two aspects of how people make decisions. Because when you're designing an experiment and you want a very specific results, be able to publish a scientific paper around it, it's much easier if you're only comparing two things. And you can say, here is how the decision would be made if people were calculating rationally and using System 2. Here's how it would be made if they just jump to a conclusion without thinking at all. However, those two modes of thinking, they are good for running those kind of experiments, but they definitely don't cover all of the thinking that we do in the real world. When We're navigating the world and this could be walking down the supermarket aisle looking at products. It could be on the web looking at uh, Instagram or choosing a car or even even going on a date and choosing the partner we want to be with. We're certainly not just relying on calculation. We don't have a spreadsheet telling us here are all the correct attributes of my future partner and uh, how how can I optimize them to uh, give me the best outcome.
1: Unless you're Elon Musk. I mean, Elon may do it that way. (laughs) Elon may do it that
2: way. uh, But has that worked out for him? I mean, have a look at his history. (laughs) But you're also not just relying on gut reaction. That's there. It's definitely there, but it's not the only thing you're relying on. What you're doing very often is using your imagination and telling yourself a story. And in the case of a partner, well, that could be the story of, will I like spending my life with this person? What will that look like in the coming years? In the case of a, packet of potato chips it might be what will this taste like or will my kids like this cereal so you're imagining the outcome of a decision and you're you're using your you're telling yourself a story well if i buy this i put it in my basket i will bring it home i'm going to open it on the the, in this context or this particular consumption occasion and these are the people who will be there and i think that they will perceive it this way and this is what they'll think of me as a result and you're putting together this sequence of possible events using your imagination. There are no rules really that tell you the answer to any of those questions, but you are bringing in elements of past experience, what you know about the people involved, including yourself, and essentially, you've told yourself a story, does that story have a happy ending? If the story has a happy ending and it's a good one, there's a good chance you'll buy that product or date that person or choose that car. If the story has a worse outcome, then you probably choose not to. And so you have uh, used the the process in psychology is called mental simulation, uh, which is where we uh, we can essentially pre-experience something that we in, in the future might experience, or or even replay something we have experienced. But in the moment, right now, I'm not experiencing it, but it's only going on in my head. The mental simulation process is what we use to make a lot of our decisions, and. So because that doesn't fit into system one or system two, we thought actually this, it's important enough to have its own label. And so let's try and figure out how that works. And so we dug into what's really going on there. You're assembling a set of cause and effect relationships. Cause and effect is also very important in storytelling. Um, And so we learn about this by listening to the stories that people tell. So we ask consumers, tell me a story about a time you did this, or tell me about a time when this could happen to you, what do you think would happen? And those stories, in the same way as people reveal their values when they're telling you a story, they also reveal their beliefs about the world. And those beliefs will ultimately tell you, are they going to buy this product? How should you design this product so that people will want it and will buy it so it can play a good part in their their story? And that's what the, we designed the set of quantitative research tools to dig into all of those cause and effect relationships to be able to gather say 2,000 people, get them to tell us stories in, through a, a survey either audio or, or in text, and analyze the the stories they tell to produce uh, a kind of map that shows you the landscape of the category that they're making decisions within and also where different brands sit within that category. And that allows you to to know how to position a brand, where the opportunities are, what the future of the category might look like. And that's what we're hoping we are going to win the prize for next week.
1: Now, that is very, very cool. So it's a a projective technique on steroids, effectively. Yeah, Yeah,
2: absolutely. Projective is is the right word for it. It's Traditional projective qual is about using your imagination. It's about putting yourself in a space where you currently are not. And this allows you to do the same thing on a a quantitative basis, uh, which allows you to kind of supercharge the analysis analyze it much faster and on a bigger scale where you can get statistically reliable results and also to do it in a kind of ongoing basis so you can keep continuously collecting data and have it alert you to opportunities and trends when they happen
1: so are you seeing greater application in kind of early stage innovation and uh, in ideation for that that approach
2: yeah well so a couple of examples we used it in the food and beverage industry a few times, mainly to look at either new categories. So we've got a company using it to explore a category they currently are not in. In fact, it's an emerging category that is still very much up for grabs. So they want to explore what that looks like to consumers and where they can find good opportunities to play. We have others where it's a more established category, but the they want to explore the influence of a trend such as sustainability. So in the snacks and beverage world, there's a growing awareness of the importance of sustainable packaging, but also sustainable agriculture and so on. And so we uh, we have a client exploring all of that and seeing what stories do consumers want to hear about this? What how, what story can we tell that's both credible and meaningful and authentic? And how can we therefore position our products in a way that people will, will want, but also then they can build in the modeling of the actual ecological impact and see, if we do this, is it going to actually have the positive impact that we want. So that ties into other data, but the, the consumer perception side is very much where we are. We've used it in a bit, in a more tactical way here and there. So we've done it with, actually, at one of the IIEX conferences, I presented with Kingsford, uh, the charcoal brand. And for them, we used it to test some of their ads because TV ads are also about storytelling. And we wanted to play the ads to different groups of consumers find out what stories the ads would evoke in their mind and which of those stories were most compatible with the brand's positioning and the brand image. And then actually we also had a a second behavioral test there to actually to see which of those would convert into purchases. So we actually linked people off. After seeing the ads, we linked them off to an e-commerce site where they could buy the charcoal. And we were able to measure which ads triggered the greatest
1: amount of purchase behavior as well as which one told the best story. Well, it makes me think about, what does it look like when you're combining it almost with uh, with Jungian archetypes, right? Of you know your self perception, your narrative that you tell yourself. I mean, I am the hero, right? Absolutely, um, the- yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so
2: that is interesting. So we we definitely use this. We do extract personas from this. So we did a study um, that, in fact, this is a syndicated piece of work. You can get this from our website, at least a, a summary of it on sustainability. And we found the five sustainability personas or characters that different consumers fit within. So you get everyone from the, who we call activist Alicia, who is the, you know, the typically younger, someone who's very keen on doing everything sustainably. They're probably vegetarian. They've got, you know, it's a very important part of of their decision-making process. Over to the other end, uh, Rick the resistor, who is kind of the polar opposite and who, not quite a a denier, but who basically says, you know what, I'm never gonna make a difference to this. The science is all debatable anyway, I'm not gonna engage. And then along the spectrum, you've got different people. You have a nostalgic persona who's thinking back to, you know, when I was a kid, everything was sustainable. Everything came in brown wrapping paper and there was no plastic. And uh, then someone who's a bit of a compromiser, who they want to do what's right, but they also, they're busy, convenience and cost is a big pressure. And then a blaming persona who says that the, well, this is really the company's fault or the government's fault. They have to deal with it and and not me. So there's, although that's not exactly Jungian, it still is, there's still archetypes. And I'm sure you can see all of those different personalities in the people that you know, and and
1: maybe even in yourself. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I fit in that. (laughs) (laughs) But more broadly speaking, though, and go with that maybe harebrained idea of the of the the archetypes, have you found broader personas across category from the way people approach this idea of narratives? Have you found, you know, look, all right, we're going to look at the population level, you know, not around a specific product, but just in general, that there are folks who approach this. And actually, let me go off the second when we think about it, when we were talking, was the explosion of of social media, particularly around like Instagram and TikTok, I think those are narrative platforms. Those are platforms where where people portray a narrative to others about themselves, whether it is correct or not, you know, it is of this projective component. This is who I am. And I would imagine that if, you know, research would show that we could probably boil that down to a few different types of folks across those. So am I, Overthinking this, or is there some, no, some evidence I, around that?
2: I, I, I think that I think that's right. However, I would say that it's also about perspective because in my story, you might be the guide, or you might be the antagonist, or you might be the you know you might even be the person that I end up with at the end of the story. But in your story, then I'm the antagonist, or I'm the you know. So we each play different roles in each other's stories. And I think that those archetypes, we, we all play those archetypes in different times and in different categories. So in some categories, I will be the hero where I am. Uh, I'm navigating the, the category. I've got an objective. I seek out a solution. My solution kind of fails or doesn't quite work. I, I have to keep looking. I have to f- keep fighting. And then eventually I find the, the right solution or the, I overcome the obstacles. And that's that particular pathway is one that we we see. And in a way, that's an aspirational category for a brand because your customer, being the hero of the story, you want to recognize what their problem, their need is. They use your category to try to fulfill their need, but it fails because the other players in the category are not as good as you. But when they come across your brand, that's when they finally solve their problem. And so in that sense in the categories where they're engaged and where they're actively purchasing, then everybody is the hero. But in other categories, you might be the guide or you might be the antagonist. And so that could either be a low engagement category where I, you know, I'm I'm just buying by habit or where someone else makes the decision in my household or where I'm I'm just following someone else's lead. Or there could be a category that I reject and uh, you know, I I refuse to buy this type of product or drive this type of car or you know, use social media, where then I am the antagonist. So there are these roles and they, and they are to some extent universal and replicable. We, you know, we can oversimplify it, but they are, you do see them come up again and again pattern-wise. But I don't think the same person always plays the same role. I think that's the key thing. It's not that there are five types of people in society. It's that we all are five types
1: of people depending on what we're doing at the time. Wow. That is interesting. Have you ever read uh, Joseph Campbell?
2: I've read a little bit of of the original Joseph Campbell, but I read a lot of the narrative theory and story that has followed on from that. And uh, yeah, there's a great book called The Science of Storytelling by Will Starr, which I would definitely recommend. A lot of these books are written from the viewpoint of people who want to tell stories. So if you're writing a novel, if you're telling a story, if you're making a TV show, or indeed if you're doing a research debrief, you will find a lot out there about how to write a good story. You should have your You know, beginning, middle, and end. These are the high points. These are the, this is how you set up your story. What they tend not to explore in as much depth is the stories that we could go out and listen to. So, all of our consumers are telling stories, or we can get them to tell us stories. We can encourage them to reveal their why, reveal a lot about their life by telling stories. And we want to go out and listen to those. So, you use the same lens, you use the same analytical tools to say that when someone tells me a story, I'm going to look for the objective, I'm going to look for the obstacles, I'm going to look for the resolution, I'm going to look for the other characters in the story. So I'll I'll look and I'll listen for those when a consumer's talking to me, but it's you're using it as a, a lens and an analytical tool rather than using it as a rhetorical tool to tell my own story. I think that's, you know, the, the old, Cliche as we have two years in one month, but uh, you know, as researchers, we our job really is to listen and to to gather insight from other people, not just to make it up ourselves. So I think that's that's a, an important use of story technology, so to speak.
1: Yeah, uh, endlessly fascinatingly. I'd certainly, uh, as you mentioned, as we're recording this, the results are are not known yet. But I, I certainly hope that you win that award, and more importantly, I think that this is just a it's another dimension of this idea of, of if researchers are the keepers of the why, and that's something I think increasingly is true for us. Uh, we don't own the, the who, what, when, where, and how any longer, but the why I think is our domain. It is a, a vital dimension to try and add more nuance and depth to understanding. So hats off. It, it's very cool. I don't, I don't know that I've in my 20 years in this industry, if I've ever thought about the idea of the the narrative persona and the importance of that within the kind of the contextual framework of understanding the consumer that way, as soon as you say it, like, well, duh, yeah, <laughs> that makes just a, a ton of sense. So, so very cool, very cool stuff. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So I want to be conscious of your time as well as time of our, our listeners, and make sure to circle back around to your recruiting pitch as well. So, (laughs) so other than this, maybe, maybe not award that's coming, you know, we are recording this uh, at the the tail end of November. So we'll, by the time it goes live, we'll probably be, uh, post holidays. So what are you looking forward to for 2023 for the business for yourself, whatever the world, Mm. Elon, what's, uh, uh,
2: well for the business, we've been thinking about setting up a, a U.S. office Lots of debate about that. So you'll know Kristid uh, Luck and Jamin Brazil. I'm sure they we work with them in something called the consortium, which is a like a business growth club or group, small group that they have. And uh, so we were last week we were debating should we in, be investing to set up an office in the US? Should we service uh, our American clients from here? And uh, we're still working on that. But that's that's definitely something in if not in the first part of 2023 then. We definitely want to be getting there within the following year and otherwise really we're well like i say we're we're expanding we are uh hoping to hire about 12 people in the next nine months so i would love to uh you know that and that goes across quantum call researchers client service people salespeople, and uh we're working with you'll know uh, adam warner who's our head of marketing but uh we we want to expand our marketing as well so really anyone who's excited by this topic, this idea of narrative research, and uh, wants to help us to bring that to, to more clients, we would love to, to hear from you and, uh, and work with you. I think the we're obviously entering into a, a time of economic uncertainty, but maybe slightly more in Europe than the US, but I think both. So obviously, there's, there's always impacts on the research industry when uh, there's a slowdown or when when things are volatile, and so I think we're in the fortunate position of having something new that people, our clients, are really interested in buying into. So hopefully that will help us to continue expanding. Uh, and I think when one of the key things actually is that clients are facing new situations. You know, we're in a new environment. Inflation is is an obvious one. For forty years, really, most of us have not experienced inflation of ten percent. We're just, we've just grown used to an environment where you, you get a few percent increase every year. It doesn't really have a big impact. Uh, interest rates are low. Uh, and suddenly we're in this new environment, which is more like reminiscent of the 70s. And so all of the research and the trackers and everything we've been doing for the last few decades has been in a totally different environment. Are those research methods still going to give valid results, especially if you're looking at pricing, especially if you're looking at, trying to launch a new product at a time when consumers maybe are retrenching. And so using having tools that allow you to do research in new environments and still be able to help put consumers mentally into that, immerse themselves into that new environment and give accurate responses as to what would I do in this situation, I think that's very important and that's that's appealing to clients. So that's, that's another thing that behavioral science is good at helping to do and, and that creating those narratives gives you a powerful tool to explore.
1: Yeah, I definitely, I think that you're right for what it's worth for any, any uh, brands that are listening. You know, we are in the period of disruption. It started before 2020, 2020 stepped on the gas and there's an incredible long tail of massive change that I I think hopefully not decades, but certainly we have many more years of, uh, of continual evolving the domino effect. Of changes, the the economic conditions that we're experiencing now were already in play before 2020. 2020 just exacerbated it. Here we are, you know we've we've kicked the can down the road in so many ways uh, as a species, multiple cans, yeah. and we can't kick them anymore. We're going to have to just bite the bullet and, and deal. And that creates opportunity. And it sounds like you've actually uh, also uh, it's probably an important thing to pull out really quickly before we end that from a methodological standpoint. That you are utilizing, I assume you're utilizing automation and you know the latest and tools, so that it can be those cost and speed efficiencies can be maximized as well within the approach. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's partly done because we we have this continuous research that we do in the background that clients can draw on rather than having to do everything from scratch by themselves. And also, yeah, we have we have our own internal technology team. In fact, I, I, before research, I came from a technology industry background, developing software. So we've always had that tech focus or tech emphasis. So yes, we, we do a lot of automation. We build, we have a lot of self-service platforms where our clients can uh, tap in and and extract their own data. So we, like PepsiCo, for example, are, are have their own portal that we run for them where they can dial in and extract Different narratives uh, based on whatever searches they want to carry it. So yeah, all of that, well, agility to use the uh, the cliche, is uh, clearly an absolute requirement of the industry now. And uh, it's uh, they're not always going to be asking agencies to do that for them. Uh, some clients still do because that's you know that's just each brand has its own needs. But uh, yeah, the ability to do things by yourself and in an automated way, I am a firm believer in.
1: That's great, Lee. It has been uh, such a pleasure catching up. But uh, yeah, why, why do we wait years? We we need to talk more regularly. Absolutely. This well, was, we'll
2: this... we'll book this in for for this time next year, uh, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you at uh, a conference or two before then.
1: I hope so. I hope so. Uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on all the success. Congratulations on the growth. How can people find you if they want to send you your uh, a resume? To um,
2: yeah, irrationalagency.com. Our about page has got. Uh, listing of jobs, but you can also find me on LinkedIn. It's Lee Caldwell. Uh, uh, it's L E I G H C A L D W E L L, and uh, I think I'll come up as the top person with that name on LinkedIn. And I'm still on Twitter. So, uh, so as at time of recording, I'm Lee Blue
1: on Twitter. So you can chat to me there as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, as of today, right? as of today. So... <laughs> Lee, thanks so much. We are in the holidays, so I'll say happy holidays to you and yours as well. Likewise. Uh, yes, for uh, even though our listeners, you'll be hearing this post-holidays, which always the timing of these things sometimes get awkward uh, when I make date references. But anyway, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our producer, Natalie, to our editor, James. Thanks to our sponsor. And we'll wrap up this edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And we will be back again soon. Mm-hmm.